there are um, there are times. Well, okay, probably all the time, obviously. But there are times I really like the Bible. Um, there's sometimes like this. This is one of them. Verse nine says, during the night, Paul had a vision of a man from Macedonia standing, begging him, "Come over to Macedonia and help us." And Paul had seen, having seen the vision, uh, got ready at once to leave, concluding, probably reasonably so, that God had called us to preach the gospel in Germany. That's a hilarious phrasing. I don't want to let me find that. I've got that hilarious. <laughs> Concluding very wisely after having received the vision of a man begging us to come and help, that probably God was there. Nice work, Paul. Nice work. Um, this is nothing to do with what I'm about to preach, but I found it very interesting. I found this today. Um, I read this from my phone because I screenshotted this. Did you know <clears throat> men between the ages of 20 and 29.7 father? 39% of the children born to teenage moms aged 15. That means grown men father a large percentage of children born to teenagers, but teen mothers are presented as the problem. Isn't that interesting? It's fascinating, do you think? 39% of people aged up to 30. Quite a fascinating statistic. Not that that's specifically what we do, but it is, I think it's worth bearing in mind as we talk about the Holy Spirit who calls us to reevaluate and we look at things that that's perhaps interesting statistic to be aware of. Uh, where are we? <clears throat> we're okay, we don't have things to do. Lovely, there we are. Deep sea fishing, deep water fishing, and the Holy Spirit as our guide. Acts 6, 6 to 15. Um, these are some pictures of fish. Oh wait, that would be if I turn this on. Here we are. These are some pictures of fish. <laughs> I've got the top left one actually, I don't think it technically is a fish, but I don't touch your up top right one either. Um, when my sister was at university, she was in the house with two other guys. Angry Rob and Messy Joe, as they were known. <laughs> Rob wasn't actually angry, but one particular evening I had come home to our, our actual parents' house in Southampton and I happened to be standing in the kitchen talking to some people, one person of whom was his girlfriend, and he came and gave me a very angry look. And from then on, he became known as Angry Rob. Uh, but he's actually lovely. That's why I'm on top of a mountain in Greece, as, as you do. Anyway, so top left one, he, Angry Rob, owned a own axe bottle, which is the fish in the top left. Which I thought was quite cool. And Philip said, Oh, if you go and if you put something in the tank, it will kind of follow it around and kind of you know track it. And I said, Okay, cool. So I don't know, I think she gave me a straw, probably she gave me a straw. She gave me this plastic straw and I, I dipped it in. And lo and behold, the axolotl did kind of they, they don't really move much, they, they're sort of very placid. And you just sort of watch this thing and you can see its head moving. And then I, I sort of I think dipped it in maybe, I don't know, about so much, not very much, I mean, a couple of centimeters. And suddenly, this thing launched itself at the, at the straw and it gripped on. And as you would, obviously, when an animal has bitten something you're holding, you sort of shake it to get the thing off. Which, may I just say at this juncture in time, is not a smart thing to do with a fish in the water when you are outside of the water. Anyway, fortunately, the axe actually, fortunately, the axe not, not quite, not quite that bad. But then it gets worse. Um, it didn't fly out of the tank because actually it's got some kind of pizza grip in its jaws. It's holding on and I was flinging it around. And so I thought, well, this isn't working. So then I thought, right, I need to, I need to dislodge this thing. So then I started doing this up and down to try and get it to fall off this thing. Anyway, and I think what actually happened was that, that basically in that process, I sort of lodged the, the straw further down its neck. And um, anyway, just after I'd done this, it sort of went very stiff and kind of just sank to the bottom on its side. <laughs> and it stayed there and didn't move. And then I sort of tapped on the edge of the glass a bit and it just stayed there. Looking at this, I said, Philip, well, she was there. I said, Philip, what are you going to do? She said, we just leave and we don't say anything. 
and I poked my head back in to and then bartender's legs and still this sign. I said, I think it's dead. She said, just don't say anything. It doesn't move much anyway, very nice. Anyway, turned out that that's all was fine. It was it was all okay. And lived for many happy years afterwards. Um, I've written a note here on my notes to talk about something really simple. I don't recall why I've done that, but anyway. Um, <coughs> so these are fish. There are lots of different types of fish in the ocean. You may or may not be aware of that. Um, the, uh, the, the title of today's talk is The Holy Spirit is our guide and director. Now the Holy Spirit, just in case you aren't entirely clear on this, and because the church hasn't always been clear on this, the Holy Spirit is God. So what that really means is God is our guide and director. Or, to put it more simply, do what God tells you. Which I think is basically it. So we could go home and just have an early lunch, which would be nice. But the likelihood of me finishing in three minutes is fairly low, uh, and I think we've got a while to go. But it's actually very simple. This, the concept is really simple. Do what God tells you. The Holy Spirit is God. Although we, we are conscious that there are three distinct persons in the Trinity, there's still one God. One God. God tells us what to do. He's our director. We do what he says. That's basically how it goes. I'm not actually a big fan of fish. I don't eat. I don't eat anything that lives in the water. Basically, I, I just I can't abide it. Um, the one concession I will make is fish cakes, but they're basically potatoes. So you know, I think that's okay. So I don't. But I have in my life been fishing on four different occasions. Once as a teenager, young teenager, uh, fishing in Yorkshire in torrential rain, caught absolutely nothing. Uh, once in France with just a, a basically a piece of string and uh, I think we had a hook actually and we got things from the table, it was like a wedding practice for some French food that my dad had gone to France. And so we just took things from the table. So we fished with bits of cheese and with salami and things. Um, and actually did catch a few fish as it happened. Um, but we weren't very we were still quite young, so we had to go get someone's dad to come take them off the hook and throw them back for us, which was fine. Uh, once in Australia, in Tasmania. Uh, three friends and I, so three, yeah, I mean, three friends and I, we went down to a local, it's really nice kind of fishing pier, we took, um, I mean, actually we took bait, I don't recall, but I think we probably took bait, and we took cigars, and we took, you know, probably cans of beer or something, it was a very kind of, you know, ridiculous, quasi-macho kind of thing to do, anyway, we caught absolutely nothing, um, but it was a very nice time anyway, and then the last time I went fishing was, I actually went deep sea fishing, um, one of my well, churches I went to previously had, they were doing a men's day, the fishing trip thing, and then someone dropped out at the last minute. And the pastor called me and said, just wondering, do you want, do you want to go fishing? Because we've got this first place. And it happened to be the same day as my birthday. I said, yeah, you're right, let's do it. And we were fishing for skate, which is the fish on the left. Well, that was what was what we were likely to catch. And people who did catch skate, and, uh, a few of them were big enough, and so they were, they were cut up and they took the skate wings home to cook them. Um, and I really didn't catch anything, except right towards the end of the day, I caught a shark. So on the right hand side is a smooth hand shark. And it was, I've lost the picture unfortunately because my, my external hard drive got nicked from my last school. It was quite big, it was about this big. Um, so I had to hold it with sort of two big hands and there's a picture of me on this big shark. I'm going to throw it back and whatever. That was pretty cool. Um, I'm not, you know, not a great fisherman, but I have, even from my limited experience, learned several important things about fishing and I think they're relevant. First of all, fish are hungry and they want to eat. And you can put salami on the end of your hook and they will come and eat. Fish are hungry and they will eat what you put in the, for in the water. Well, not hungry anyway. You don't always, when you go fishing, need any special equipment. A bit of rope, a piece of salami from the wedding breakfast table and then a hook if you've got one, or I guess you can make something for an old coat hanger. Will suffice, that will do. 
and you can fish. Sometimes you go fishing and you catch nothing. Absolutely nothing. And the experience can still be worthwhile spending time with your friends, learning what it's like to stand up there in the cold and in the rain. It's absolutely worthwhile. Often other people catch more than you. So what? And sometimes you don't always catch what you expect. You might be fishing for a skate and actually come home, or you don't come home from, but you actually come home with a smooth hand shark. You don't always get what you're expecting. And once the fishing is over, there are other things to be done. There are people that take the skate wings home, they clean them up, they cook them up, they, they do the sauce, they, they put them on the table, and then someone else might eat them entirely. Perhaps the chef has cooked them and someone comes to the restaurant and eats it. Fishing doesn't stop just because you've caught something and lands it on the end of your hook. You see the point, don't you? Fish, people are hungry and they do want to eat. And it is both encouraging and scary that they will eat almost anything you put in the water. You don't always need special equipment to be fishers of men. Or women, children. Sometimes you go fishing and you can't catch anything. But the experience is still worth doing because God told us to do it. Other churches catch more than us. Maybe. So what? And lastly, the people we're fishing for aren't necessarily always the ones we get. And when we do get them, there are other things to do. We need to take it home and cooked and served with, you know, lovely peppercorn sauce, <laughs> potatoes and vegetables. But they do. All these things are true, actually. They're all true about our job, the job that God has given us. But I thought, because the, the verses that we've got, there, there, are some great, there are some great stories in there in chapter 13 of these verses. There's some lovely things in But I thought we'd take a look, broadly speaking, and okay, if this is true, if really fish are hungry and they want to eat, if you don't necessarily need special equipment, you don't always get what you want, if all of this is true, and if it is true that we do what God tells us to do, basically God's our guide and we do what he tells us, what does it look like in Acts? So, in some people it looks like in Acts. Here we go. Quick intro and summary of the Acts of the Apostles. I didn't want person to see my little captions. I'm enjoying so far the same. Of the same spirit that inspired the book of Acts is the same spirit that lives inside you, physically you. Um, the one that, you know, that makes 5,000 people have their food. I know that's not an Acts, just by the way. The one that, you know, tongues of fire and speaking in tongues and, you know, gives visions to Paul. It's the same spirit. He hasn't become watered down, he, she, it, they, whatever. They have, the spirit has not become something different. Same spirit. Absolutely same spirit. You have it, just as the Acts, the apostles did. Maybe it was a particular time of blessing. Maybe, maybe God works like that. Maybe he doesn't. I don't know. I don't know. The Acts of the Apostles, the book actually takes place over around about 30 years, from AD 30 to AD 60. There are 28 chapters in the book of Acts. Each chapter, if you just do an average, takes two years to happen. It doesn't work that way. But just assume that for a second the next time you read it. It's easy to read Acts and go, wow, look what they're doing, this is amazing. If only we go back to doing that. Yeah, sure, let's go back to doing that. Let's have one thing happen every two years. Great, if you feel that way. It's a lot missing from the story of Acts. 30 years it takes in 28 chapters. Two years per chapter, on average, roughly. It does nevertheless answer the question, how do we go from Jesus' life to the churches that Paul is writing to, the ones he's correcting, encouraging, and so on and so forth? It answers those questions. And lastly, and most importantly, and the reason it's most important is I'm going to show you a very interesting map. 
It fulfills Jesus' commandment to preach the gospel and make believers of all people in Jerusalem, Judea, and the ends of the earth. And here's how the Acts of the Apostles got it massively wrong and completely screwed up. This is a map of the medical kind of bits of Bible times here. So, here we are. Chapters 1 to 7 take place in Jerusalem. So roughly two years, the average doesn't work like this, but let's just go for a second. Seven chapters, two years ago, chapters 14 years, the apostles spend in Jerusalem. Despite the fact that Jesus said to them, go preach the gospel in Jerusalem and Judea and the ends of the earth. 14 years in Jerusalem. Thanks very much, apostles. Chapter 8, they spread to the countryside of Judea and Samaria because they've been persecuted in Jerusalem and they've kind of went, oh, it's a, bit, it's a bit dangerous here, let's hop it. So they spread to the countryside. Uh, in chapter 8, Peter is walking south and he meets a man from Ethiopia who presumably then takes the gospel back to Ethiopia. The apostles have massively failed to preach the end of the earth, but the man from Ethiopia has gone and done it further, in fact, than any of the apostles will ever travel. Well done, guys. So now we're up to 16 years. And they've managed to spread to the areas that pretty much Jesus covered in his three-year ministry. Nice work. Damascus. Paul runs up to Damascus in chapter 9. He becomes converted and then he returns back to Jerusalem. And the church in Judea, Galilee, that is the element, and Samaria are strengthened. In Caesarea, some Italian soldiers are met. And they hear the gospel and presumably then take it back to Italy. Again, pretty much further than any of the apostles will ever get. We are now up to 18 years, except that then chapters 10 and 12, they kind of carry on. So let's go 24 years, and thus far we've managed to go about as far as Jesus went in three years. I need the time I somewhere like that, just in case you but nevertheless. The apostles did not do a fantastic job. Please remember that. Sorry, let me rephrase that. The apostles did an incredible job and were massively faithful. But if you read Acts of the Apostles and go, if only we go back to those times and people did like that, then you are living in, you know, cloud nine, this is not reality. The reality of the Holy Spirit as our guide looks like this. The reason they went to the ends of the earth and the reason they left Jerusalem was because they were persecuted. Because King Herod or other kings started putting people to death. And it wasn't until that someone said to me, um, it wasn't until God literally dropped a bomb on the church that they got up did what they were told to do. And we should not be surprised if when the Holy Spirit, when God is our guide and director, if occasionally he drops a bomb on us in a way that we are not expecting. He knows what he's doing. Because they were persecuted, because they left, then Paul goes from Damascus up to Antioch, he goes across to Cyprus, he goes around to Turkey and Asia Minor, all of these amazing places. And he absolutely runs with, with this commandment and it works, it's amazing. And the church in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and Galilee needed strengthening and it needed the apostles. It absolutely did. And the rest of the world needed it too. The apostles weren't, they, they weren't perfect. They did just like us. They did everything they, they thought they were supposed to do. And sometimes it takes us to have a kick up the backside to do what we should be doing, sometimes. But being open to that will gather fruit. The spreading of, of the gospel through much of Europe to the rest of the world is a thing that should not be overlooked. It's amazing. So what? So what? 
I'm not, we're not, I'm not looking at the, at the verses in detail in the the story because I want to look at actually what does it mean for the Holy Spirit to be our guiding director. I think if you asked him this morning, the Holy Spirit is someone that we, that you are supposed to have a relationship with. And I think what he would say to you is, listen, I love you. Listen, I love you. And that's the same message that he has to every single person on the planet. But the Spirit does what he wants. He's not a superpower that we that we pray into existence. He's not something that we get to use. The Spirit is a person who does what he wants. In 325 AD, 300 years after Jesus dies, the church finally gets together and says, okay, let's let's figure out what we actually all believe. And they figure out that there are three bits of God. You know, there's the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. 50 years later, they're still arguing about whether the Holy Spirit is really part of God or whether he's an angel. AD 400, Augustine writes his work on the Trinity, which explains that no, the Holy Spirit really is part of God. And all this argument about, yeah, but is it three people and are they the same substance, or is it, um, is it three different states of being, and are they, and does one proceed from the Father? And frankly, who cares? Who cares? The Holy Spirit is a person, he is God, he's a person. He absolutely wants a relationship with us, and if we are not prepared to put the effort into that relationship, it works just like every other relationship. It becomes stale and stagnant and cold and it fails. Unfortunately for us, God will never give up on us. <laughs> Mildly, ironically, I share the heavy nightmares, Rachel and I both actually. I'm just sorry, I'm just moderating over the story. Is kind of, there's not, you're not meant to read anything into the story, it's not as far as I'm aware anyway. <laughs> but I, I've said in Italian, and Rachel mentioned this to me a really week or two ago. We both had nightmares recently that we that our marriage has split up, we've broken it's broken down, and they're horrific. You know, you wake up just you know crying and uh, feeling horrible and just turning over and checking the person is still there. And the next morning you, you're reminded to go, I really love you. Do you know that? Uh, just uh, there's something I can do for you every day, and then I become more conscious of having a terrible husband there. Um, and I you know, and I don't think it's because we're splitting up, I think it's probably because maybe God every now and then says, Do you know what, this is how relationships work. If you're not conscious of the fact that you need to love each other, they will break down. They will. The Holy Spirit does what he wants. And how does he do it? He does it through dreams and visions and pictures and words in the Bible and your gut feelings and us having a good idea and people thinking and people talking and being inspired. He does it however he wants. However he wants. And all of us, all of you are different and God will speak to you. The Holy Spirit will guide you in different ways. But John Wimber used to say, the thing about God is that you just know it in your knower. People say to you, how do you know it's true? How do you know God's called to that? You just know it in your knower. That's absolutely true. And it's also absolutely wrong. This man here, this is the painting of Oliver Cromwell. He, um, we're tent is, you know, all of our roads are named after people who fought in the English Civil Wars. Um, he was a man who, who brought massive change to England, like Scotland, Wales. He basically set the groundwork and established schools, free universities, food for people, uh, modern-day democracy. He also laid the foundations for essentially the transatlantic slave trade, oppression of Catholics, horrific war in Ireland. He's a man who, he got so much right. Like, you know, an amazing man, like, an amazing, amazing man. He got so much right and so much wrong. Absolutely convinced that he was guided by the Spirit. Absolutely. His army were, you know, born again Christian believers. He wouldn't take anyone if they weren't born again because he, he just didn't want anyone to die 
without knowing that they were going to heaven. Incredible Christian man. And yet, at the same time, got stuff massively wrong. Probably, I think, looking at his life, probably because he wasn't in fellowship with people who said, are you sure? Do you really think that God wants us to persecute and murder Catholics? I know we have theological differences, and that's a big deal, but are you sure? Does that really treat people as though they are sacred? Is that really a good idea? And I'm giving systematic theology a bit of a background. Systematic theology is amazing. It's a theology that kind of tries to explain how stuff works, and that's a very simple definition. The problem with it is, the problem I have with it is, that, that if, if you believe you understand everything about God, you don't know God, you have missed the point. The book of Job is one of my favourites. And I think the basic message is, you really don't get it, do you, Job? I'm bigger than you think I am. And I'm not going to answer your questions, because that's not how this works. The Holy Spirit is massive, but I, but I think he comes with a word of caution and a word of encouragement. One is, you'll know it. You do know it in your hour. He absolutely loves you and wants to speak to you, and he will speak to you when he comes to that relationship. But at the same time, a word of caution. Stop yourself and check when we're saying, this God is calling me to this. Is he? Well, let's just check. Is it just compassionate and merciful? Because in Exodus, that's what God says he is. And does it respect the other people concerned as if they were sacred? Yes, 30-year-old man, maybe you do feel like you're another 15-year-old girl. Is it just merciful, compassionate? Does it treat that person as if they were sacred? Be what God would do. Not sure about that. Paul, amazing Christian, amazing missionary, absolutely pays attention to the Spirit. And you'll see in those verses that a number of times they try and do something in the Spirit, say, nope, not going there. Prevented. Don't know how, don't know why, doesn't really matter. They were stopped from going somewhere. They went somewhere else. The Holy Spirit is our guide. And He does love us. And I think it's worth getting to know a little bit better.